Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA or the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Welcome to episode 229 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening show for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host and producer. I look forward to sharing with you over the next 40 minutes updates to our local garden scenes and recent articles about gardens, plants, and designers, both in California and around the world. Gardens are in my DNA. I was raised in a family of gardeners, and my grandparents and mother handed down a love of flowers, of orchids, and of roses, among many other gifts. I have been an inveterate gardener for years, from that first six-pack of marigolds I bought at Home Depot in suburban Connecticut to laying out birthday rose gardens, planting fruit trees, and rescuing overgrown and underloved gardens, as well as building my own personal garden library with classic design texts and memoirs and commentaries from gardeners and designers to just a few glossy coffee table indulgences. I've spent years getting to know California's Mediterranean garden landscapes, plants, and climate, even as I have fallen for English and continental garden design traditions, grown fond of the particularities and peculiarities of succulents, which perform so well in our climate, and learned to love and respect the quiet power of a Japanese garden. I've been active in local garden societies and visited botanical gardens around the world, believing not only in the benefits of gardening itself, but of being in the garden, and of being charmed by that special alchemy of plants, climate, soil, design, place, and space. Gardens are a place where we can become more alive and more connected with the world we share with others. And as the good book reminds us, it all began in a garden. Welcome to this week's show. We start this mid-January broadcast with an article by Jane Owen published in the Financial Times of London on the 12th of January, Time to Take Stock of a Garden's Big Picture. Winter is an excellent time for an audit of structure, seeing the grounds at their worst to find room for improvement. Structure helps give a garden year-round interest. It frames the best features and conceals the worst. Now that winter has laid bare the bones of our gardens, this is an excellent moment for an audit focused on structure and structures. It is tricky for gardeners to see their creations objectively because our regular primping, tweaking, and perfecting makes them too familiar. We're so fixated by every emerging flower and pest, we rarely allow ourselves time to stand back and observe. In order to shift my mindset away from maintenance to the big picture, I take off my tool belt and spend a couple of hours walking the garden, trying to avoid familiar roots and distractions, such as emerging snowdrops and iris unguicularis and collapsing hazel wigwams. I take notes on my phone, plus lots of pictures from lots of angles, which I then pour over as objectively as I am able. 
These are not the carefully chosen close-ups of frost sparkling on seed heads that grace gardening magazines, so much as depressing snaps of the garden at its worst. Once the list of garden failings is complete, the search for solutions and new ideas comes from garden visiting, preferably in the flesh. The National Garden Scheme and the National Trust are good garden visiting guides, and from books and online, always keeping in mind the idea of the garden as a picture. Through the ages, gardens and landscapes have inspired pictures and been inspired by pictures. Claude Lorraine's Landscape with Aeneas at Delos inspired the 18th century landscape at Stourhead in Wiltshire, which in turn inspired pictures. The latest from the American digital artist Daniel Ambrosi is one of his curious, swirly AI interpretations of Capability Brown landscapes. Stourhead is also a reminder that structure can be inspired by narrative. Stourhead's lake walk with the Temple of Apollo and the Pantheon, for instance, traces Aeneas's journey to Carthage. On a smaller scale, Melor's Gardens near Macclesfield is an allegory for the Pilgrim's Progress, complete with a Howling House, where an Aeolian harp recreates unearthly howls, and a flight of steps represents Jacob's Ladder, all of which add structure as well as entertainment. Ham House Garden, beside the Thames in London, was part of the craze for formal garden in 17th century England and Wales, with the formal structure created from stone, brick, yew, lavender, and box. At Ham, the beautifully maintained parterres and topiary give 3D delight in every season. Water, a particularly attractive and amenable part of garden structure, also works across the seasons, adding light and wildlife to any size plot. At 18th century Studley Royal in Yorkshire, the Ayres Laby family's lakes and formal pools enhance the natural beauty of the surrounding hills and valleys. In the U.S., water is a focal point at Innisfree Public Garden in New York State, where a series of mini landscapes around the perimeter are united by the 40-acre lake and a magnificent 60-foot water jet. Water can be used in just about any size of garden, and the pool and rills in our current garden are pleasing, but as I continue my structural audit, I secretly hanker after an 18th-century folly or two. At Paynes Hill in Surrey, the flamboyant Gothic Temple, Chinese Bridge, and Ruined Abbey, to name just a few, entertain year-round and entice visitors deep into the landscape, even in the snow that decided to spread across southern England this week. On the other hand, our odd gingerbread cottage-style home is such a dominant aesthetic that it would be difficult to find a suitable folly, unless Oxford's All Souls College Chapel at the bottom of our hill, were kind enough to give us a gothic arch or a couple of their attractively gilded angels. And anyway, serious space is needed for serious follies, and our acre looks feeble against Payne's Hill's 158. Instead, a modest town garden such as ours can, for instance, use a gothic-style summer house or covered seat to block an eyesore or cheer up a dowdy corner. Alternatively, topiary is a relatively cheap and sustainable way to add structure or frame or block views. But it raises the question of what plant to use now that box is victim to devastating caterpillars and disease. I'm not prepared to use chemicals to fight either, 
and instead I have removed the box topiary globes, cones, and baubles that took a couple of decades to perfect. This year I will start carving new topiary shapes in U to help define the start of a path and blot out a student accommodation block that has sprouted in a nearby conservation area. My audit complete, I retreat from the garden's icy gloom to our log fire, a glass of extra dry vermouth in hand to talk garden ideas and less demanding thoughts with my garden-tolerant husband. An article by Jane Owen published on the 12th of January in the Financial Times, Time to Take Stock of a Garden's Big Picture. While we're in the thinking mode, our next article by Luke Edward Hall was published on the 8th of January in the Financial Times, What Else Can I Do With My Garden Office? Garden buildings, to me, speak of frivolity and indulgence. Transform your ex-workplace into an oasis of relaxation. Question, I installed a garden office two years ago. Now I hardly ever work from home, and it's freezing most of the time. Can you recommend an alternative use? The idea of a garden office is an enticing one. The ability to take a few short steps from home to workplace via flower beds and trees, but more importantly, sans bad lighting and shared fridges. What's not to love? But if you no longer work from home, don't let your garden building fall into disrepair. There are plenty of other ways in which you might choose to enjoy it. Perhaps it's about flipping this around. Garden buildings, to me, speak of frivolity and indulgence. Inside our homes, most of us are fairly limited when it comes to choosing what to do with our rooms. Garden rooms are a luxury. In this frantic world, they are more often than not built as places in which to switch off. You could transform your ex-workplace into an oasis of relaxation. How about a garden library? I, for one am in desperate need. Our book situation at home is out of control, with stuffed shelves and stacks all over the house. A garden shed lined with floor-to-ceiling bookshelves is my idea of heaven. Then again, so is the idea of a cinema room with movie projector and comfortable sofas or a music room. Why not make it a combination of all three? You may want to think more practically, however. Perhaps your need of another guest room, much more than a room for watching films. I've always loved the idea of having an extra bedroom down at the bottom of my garden. Sending friends out into the night with Wellington boots and a torch has a sense of adventure about it. For inspiration, see the garden cabin designed by architectural salvage superstars Adam Hills and Maria Speak of Retruvius for presenter George Lamb. Though newly built, the cabin is entirely charming thanks to its materials. Repurposed former chapel doors line the front and can be flung open when the weather is nice enough. Inside, tongue and groove panels of variegated wood are arranged horizontally across the walls. The overall effect is one of wonder, and this, for me, is what garden buildings should be about. 
perhaps you might consider creating a room to dine in. Let's think back to the follies of the 17th and 18th centuries that dot the English landscape, some of which can be rented for holidays via the Landmark Trust or the Banqueting House at Old Warder Castle in Wiltshire that I paid a visit to just before Christmas. In the 17th century, guests of Sir Baptist Hicks could retire to the West Banqueting House in Chipping Camden, now rentable via the Landmark Trust, for their banquet or dessert course to drink rare wines, eat dried fruit and sweetmeats, and admire their host's domain. Its website informs me. For more contemporary and still thoroughly excellent inspirations, look to the recently opened Villa Mabruca in Tangier, This former home of Yves Saint Laurent has been transformed into a hotel by Jasper Conran. From photographs I've seen, one of my favorite spaces appears to be a dining pavilion in the villa's garden, with its beautifully painted murals of flower-bedecked trellis work by Lawrence Minot. If you're a keen gardener, my last suggestion would be to make a room for garden paraphernalia in the same vein as the late Bunny Mellon's remarkable garden house at her home in Virginia. This is another painted room with trompe l'oeil decoration by Fernand Renard. Everyday garden and deeply personal items including watering cans, baskets, letters, and books, along with gourds and bundles of asparagus, have been painted on walls and across folding cupboard doors around the entirety of the room. Actual watering cans and baskets of vegetables are strewn on tables and the stone floor, so the boundaries between the real and the unreal are deliciously blurred. It's a work of genius and highly magical. Now, naturally, your room needs to have the basics covered, ensuring a good level of comfort. It certainly shouldn't be freezing. Consider your best heating options and make sure the structure is sound. Then begin with the fun stuff. No, you may not want to go for a fully hand-painted interior a la Bunny Mellon. Bookshelves and a good armchair could be just the ticket. The main thing, as we mentioned, is that it's a real luxury to have a room of one's own. Don't let it go to waste. A recent column by Luke Edward Hall, published in the Financial Times on the 8th of January, What Else Can I Do With My Garden Office? Turn next to a recent column by Robin Lane Fox, published on January 5th, also in the Financial Times, a Crocosmia Coup and Other Mysteries of the Gardening Cosmos. We can but try to learn from a year of contrasting weather that caused horticultural surprises. What can we learn from the past? As a historian, I engage weekly with this question. As an investor, what I learn from it is that I repeat mistakes. As a gardener, I am wary of learning too much. The past year left a mixed legacy for learners. In Britain, it was friendly to gardeners from spring until mid-autumn. They were lucky as drought, fires, and gales battered many gardeners elsewhere. In Sicily, there was next to no rain from spring until late autumn, and even the island's wild cyclamen carried only about one-tenth of their usual flowers. Befitting a year of widespread drought, the UN General Assembly declared 2023 the International Year of Millet, 
the grain which grows well in dry conditions and yields a healthy crop. Gardeners who like grasses have yet to latch on to the stems and seeds of the many types of millet, especially the Japanese ones. In a warming world, it will have an important agricultural future, but it looks too brown and dreary for my garden's main sightline. In Britain, the climate, as usual, was the main imponderable, making learning from it difficult. I never remember a year with such contrasting weather. In January, sharp frost inflicted acute damage on gardens, but its effects were sporadic. In London, many gardeners missed the worst of it. My urban benchmark is my daughter's garden north of Paddington. I class abutilons with tender mallows, and in my cold garden in the Cotswolds, both of them die as soon as the temperature lurches below zero. In hers, the excellent abutilon canary bird is still seven feet high, covered in hanging yellow flowers. It is near a wall, but is not tied to it. Clearly, it is a superb, fast-growing shrub for a sunny London garden, especially as it allows lower plants to flourish under its light canopy of branches. I did not introduce canary bird to my daughter. In my garden, it would be a corpse. Outside London, gardeners in early 2023 lost far more than their canary birds. By late March, it was obvious that many hebes, cystuses, and ceanothuses were dead from top to bottom. For the past 30 years, one of my garden's early delights has been the wonderful Daphne Jacqueline Postille, up to six feet high and covered with scented lilac pink flowers even on alkaline soil. I have recommended it here since first seen it in flower in the Hillier Gardens in Hampshire, a fine place to visit in order to assess winter flowering shrubs. The tall stems on my Jacqueline Postille became a black mush in February, and to my horror, the entire plant is dead. This loss has been widely shared in exposed gardens and will take years to repair. Even so, other losses were sporadic. In autumn 2022, I failed to lift all my dahlias and store them according to the old rule in boxes in a frost-free place. This spring, I assumed they were not just missing, but dead in the ground, so I ordered many more. Many of the dahlias I had left unlifted then sent up new shoots in June and gave me a dahlia fiesta in early September until heavy rains later in the month ruined their flowers, along with the Michaelmas daisies. Why did the Dahlia's unhardy tubers survive the winter when much else did not? My theory is that cold nights were particularly deadly to evergreen plants, whose stems were soaking wet from the previous Christmas rains. Myrtles, Daphnes, and even rosemary were iced through, being so wet already all over their top growth. Dahlias, by contrast, were six inches or more underground without any branches showing. Even so, I am surprised. Alternative answers are welcome. I like mine because it accounts for the survival of most of the agapanthus and crocosmias. In pots, agapanthus are more vulnerable, and indeed my white ones turned to a soggy mush died. In open ground, they survived, as did all the crocosmias. So many new ones have been bred and selected in both families, often hardier than their parents. In the 1960s, crocosmias were regarded as a major risk, marginally hardy in Britain. But in the 2020s, we know better. They like sharp drainage, responding well to plenty of grit dug round them. They also revel in 
plenty of water. Here, 2023 obliged them. It was a rotten year to be a crocus in flower, whether in wet February or in wet November. It was an ideal year to be a crocosmia, because regular rains in summer gave its corms the moisture they appreciate. The plant of the year in my garden was smoldering red crocosmia emberglow, as it flowered more freely than ever, closely followed by tall lucifer and the vivid yellow Paul's best yellow. I was not alone in enjoying a crocosmia coup. When I visited Keith Wiley's superb naturalistic garden, Wildside in Devon, he had planted drifts of crocosmia down the slopes of a newly made landscape, which was planned to evoke South Africa. They too were having a vintage year. So were many annuals, infilling for winter's killings. Half-hearty ones missed the frost because they were bedded out in late May. Then the frequent rain showed how strong and vigorous they can be when constantly watered. In 35 years, I have never had such tall, thick-stemmed cosmos daisies, annuals often seen as far afield as India. They are not the drought-loving plants which their presence there implies. As my garden drains quickly, frequent rain showers activated the cosmos' roots. They did the same to tall tobacco plants, never so good before. Persistently wet summers are widely considered to be unfriendly to annuals, but the beauty of 2023's summer was that the rain was intermittent, usually falling between sunny days with sufficient cloud to keep off a repeat of 2022's high heat. Who could have guessed as much from the recent past? The year before last was burning hot and a severe trial for gardeners. The lesson seemed to be that fleshy-leaved, sun-loving bedding plants would now be the best choices. In 2023, the lesson was refuted in Britain. The same was true in borders. The year before was an awful year for border fluxes, but in the cool, wet months of summer 2023, they were superb. After 2023's killing cold, I started by vowing I would henceforth play safe. I'd even lost young budlias, so in future... I told myself, I would plant utterly hardy japonicas, wygelias, and philadelphus. Has the lesson been well learnt? Since October, the British non-winter has been amazingly wild, wet, and frost-free, and refuted it. Of course, it points to wider problems in the global climate, but locally, in our home British gardens, it has been so kind. In spring, I had vowed never to plant a ceanothus again except on a south-facing sheltered wall. I'm now thinking of Cyanothus Guard de Versailles as a quick-growing backbone for a summer border. About six feet high and covered in pale blue flowers, it has been the glory of many borders in Hampshire until winter 2022-23. Am I too old to learn, or is the evidence too confused for one-sided decisions to be sensible? I prefer to draw a different lesson, that gardening especially in Britain, is inherently unpredictable, a reason why we never tire of it and why one hard winter never ends by curbing hope. Whatever will 2024 bring to this column? Happily, I cannot say for sure. Robin Lane Fox's Weekly Gardens column, this one published on January 5th, A Crocosmia Coup and Other Mysteries of the Gardening Cosmos.
And despite Robin Lane Fox's view on helibores, our next article from the Times of London was written by Joe Swift and published on January 13th. Plant helibores now to cheer up any garden. My first helibores have just come into flower, and with them, uplifting seasonal signs of renewal and hope. I found myself talking to them, too, although yes was all I said with a smile on my face. Helibores are universally loved plants, woodland perennials, flowering when little else does. They always look classy to me and are highly valued by experienced gardeners, yet enjoyed by new gardeners, too, because they're easy to grow and confidence-building. Helibores are commonly known as the Christmas or Lenten rose, perhaps a misnomer as the seasons seem to be moving later, so they are rarely in flower at Christmas, and being a member of the buttercup family are nota rose. Their flowers come in a range of whites, apple, greens, yellows, pinks, and purples, some dusky and others so deep they're almost black. The downward nodding flowers will draw you in closer to turn them upwards to reveal their varied and exquisite details. Double flowers, contrasting colored speckles and blotches on their petals, all add to their charm, and pick flowers are often floated in a large water bowl to create a pretty composition and a simple way to compare the intricacies of their petals' details. Helibores are naturally promiscuous and freely self-seed. Many of the progeny come up with the same or similar characteristics to the parent plant, but some will be quite different too. Seedlings are often weaker. Some will say inferior to the selected parent plant. So if you want to avoid this, then cut off the seed heads before dispersal. If you have plenty of space though, then why not let them multiply? It can be fun seeing what pops up and they're only filling a gap. Their natural promiscuity, combined with our fondness for them, has led to breeders developing a wide and ever-increasing range with no sign of stopping. Name checks should go to Helen Ballard and Eric Smith's pioneering efforts in the 1970s. Ballard's group and many H.X. Smithii helibores, more recently Hugh and Liz Nunn for their Harvington hybrids, and John Massey at Ashwood Nurseries for the Ashwood Garden hybrids. How to grow. Helibores will grow in most soils if it's not too acidic or extremely wet or dry. Think semi-shaded woodland conditions. They may survive in deep shade, but it will reduce flowering. They are naturally long-lived plants, so prepare the soil well before planting, digging over deeply so their vigorous and deep roots can spread happily and incorporate plenty of organic matter such as leaf mold, homemade compost, or well-rotted manure. Mulch with more organic matter around midsummer after a deep watering, and again as the flower buds are forming to maintain the soil's fertility, help lock in moisture and visually set off the plants. As the new buds emerge, I always snip off any tatty-looking foliage from last year, so the flowers stand proud while making room for the new growth. It generally helps with air circulation, too, so reduces the chances of leaf spot and fungal diseases. If the general health and intensity of flowering decreases over a few years in spring after flowering, lift and divide the plant into single crowns, condition the soil again, and replant to invigorate their growth. Joe's Top 9 Helibores Helibore, the Corsican Helibore 
a sculptural plant forming a dense mound of leathery, serrated leaves. Apple green bowl-shaped flowers in pendants from January onward grows well in full sun or partial shade. Height 50 centimeters, spread 90 centimeters. Helibor X sternii Bauten Beauty, a compact strain with gray foliage and dark red stems. The green flowers are flushed with a wonderfully dusky reddish purple. Prefers a more protected spot than most, ideally with some sun too. Height and spread, 45 centimeters. Helibor X Hybridus Harvington Smoky Blue, Lenten Rose. I love the dark ones. New variety with deep purple black flowers and creamy yellow centers. Height 60 centimeters, spread 90 centimeters. Helaborus X Hybridus Ashwood Evolution Group. Yellow with golden nectaries and red flush. I love a little sunshine yellow in winter to brighten a border up and tie in with early narcissi. This one has single golden yellow flowers with a splash of red around the centers. Gorgeous. Height and spread around 30 centimeters. Helibor X Hybridus Harvington Lime, a lovely fresh lime green flower, which works on its own, but as with all zingy greens, is a fine foil to set off the color of other helibors around. Height 60 centimeters, spread 90 centimeters. Helaborus X Walburton's Rosemary. If you're looking for a pink variety, then this could be for you. Large, outward-facing, mid-pink flowers that turn a deeper ruby pink as they age. Flowers from January right through mid-April. Height 35 centimeters, spread 45 centimeters. Helibor X Hybridus Harvington Picotty. A delightful hybrid with soft pink, outward-facing, saucer-shaped flowers. The petal flowers have deeper pink veining and edge which gives it extra definition and the foliage is dark and leathery. Height and spread 45 centimeters. And Helaborus Yellow Lady, one of the Lady series, Blue Lady, Red Lady, White Lady, etc. Creamy yellow flowers with subtle markings and strong clump forming plants which look good planted in quantity. Height 45 centimeters, spread 60 centimeters. An article published in the Times of London, but written by Joe Swift, plant helibors now to cheer up any garden. These flowers are self-seeding, happy in partial shade, and will bloom when little else does. Published on Saturday, June 13th in the Times of London. this week with one of the A Day in My Garden in Winter columns, published in the Winter 2023 Hortus magazine. Thomas Rudder writes from Tuscany. It had been a mild December in the Val d'Orcia region of Tuscany. The chill felt in the mornings was quick to pass, and by lunchtime at least one outer layer could be removed, the never-ending task of raking and leaf collecting being enough to warm the body. The cold, when it does eventually arrive in January, leaves us in no doubt as to the season. I seem to suffer from seasonal amnesia, and a yearly reminder of how cold the cold can be when working in the garden is particularly challenging here. The transition is swift and surprising. I became far too accustomed to the late autumn warmth that Tuscany enjoys. 
Within a few weeks, uh, the humming of insects and the tweeting of birds ceased, and the lonely silence of winter eclipsed all else. I was at the time working as a sole gardener for a private estate near Pienza, designed by Luciano Giubilei. Although not my first time working in Tuscany, the Val d'Orcia region of southern Tuscany was new to me. The estate is looked over by Monte Amiata, an apex of Tuscany. The volcanic cone reaches up 5,700 feet, dominating and dwarfing the entire landscape. Chestnut woods, olive groves, and rows of vineyards cover the slopes, with the top of the mountain only visible on very clear days, which in January are few, at least in memory. The writer, Iris Origo, who devoted much of her life to improving the nearby La Focha estate, described this landscape as vast, lonely, uncompromising, cast in the shadow of that mysterious mountain. Origo's description seems particularly appropriate when I consider my winter here. That mysterious mountain was a constant for me last winter, as were Origo's writings, taking comfort in her description of this land that we both, at different times, shared. With the frosts yet to come, January was dedicated to rose and wisteria cutting. I enjoy these winter jobs when the slower pace and a reduced to-do list allows for a more careful and considered approach. Winter pruning of the many roses that cover a vast pergola cutting through the kitchen garden was time-consuming. Roses including Generous Gardener, Long John Silver, Lady of the Lake, and Cecil Bruner were untied, cut, and then retied, with stems arranged in as attractive a pattern as could be done when balancing awkwardly atop a ladder. From one climber to another, much of last year's growth had to be removed from Wisteria floribunda alba, cutting down to just two or three buds and discarding its many green whips. The final result, after many days' work, pergola stripped back, with a covering of vein-like stems impressively illuminated by rare, small flashes of winter sun, waiting to shoot with green leaves and pink and white flowers once again in the spring and summer. All the deciduous trees have lost their leaves by January, save for a a few hangers-on. Almond, cherry, and fig are left bare. Color could still be found, however, with persimmon fruits hanging like Christmas decorations. The orange fruits glowed vividly in the low light of a winter's day and provided me with a working snack long into the season. Frost did eventually arrive, the white covering sometimes remaining for much of the day. Snow followed, which required a frenzy of shrub shaking and raking to prevent damage to some of the more tender and shapely plants in the garden. Much of the top growth had been left to provide protection for the winter, yet in panic I moved from plant to plant, removing snow by hand and by rake so as to prevent the splaying out of vulnerable limbs under the weight of snow. Despite the white covering, the sentinel cypress tree, greatly identified with the Tuscan landscape, punctuated through when all else was lost. Goethe noted it as the most dignified of all trees. Dignified, perhaps, and impressive, when even the snow fails to hide Tuscany's green spires. Days later, toward the, towards the end of January, the snow had finally melted, albeit some remained on the mysterious mountain in the distance, veiled in the low light of the winter sun. Blue sky, finally. Towards the bottom of the garden, down a series of steps, 
Tucked around a corner, there was a small wooden bench looking directly toward Monte Amiata, my favorite spot to take my morning coffee. The winterscape can seem so silent and still, yet with blue sky and sunlight illuminating the mountain that day, the silence and the stillness did not feel quite so melancholic. Brighter days do come. A view from Thomas Rudder, writing from Tuscany, published in the winter edition of Hortus Magazine, number 148. That wraps up this edition 229 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening program produced for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. Please send us your comments at www. Lars.org, L-A-R-R-S, or email us at one word, laradioreading at gmail.com. Give us suggestions of gardens or stories to follow, your thoughts on a favorite story you heard, or what you think of the broadcast itself. Gardens are not just plants, soil, and irrigation. They speak to us of the world around us, even as we try to create order and structure. They connect us to our landscape and to the cycles of nature. They teach us patience, stewardship, and fortitude. They offer possibilities of beauty and of persistence, sometimes even of transcendence. And they open our senses to both the heart and the soul, to being alive, to being connected with other gardeners, other gardens, and other times. Whether in a container or in pots on a balcony in the city, in a defined, dedicated garden area, or planted around a suburban house or in an urban courtyard, or in spaces surrounded by trees, landscape, and open sky. Gardens are precious indeed, no matter where they are. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host. Thanks for joining us. Until the next time.